0: From 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR, this is Lake Effect. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Today, we'll look at Wisconsin's new legislative voting maps and explore how elections could be impacted. We'll speak with Margaret Cho, who's celebrating 40 years as a stand up comic with her new live and livid tour.
1: We need to find a way to find humor, and I think laughter is the answer. Laughter, humor for me is always the answer because it is that glimmer of hope that brings you into the next moment and that's what we need.
0: Plus, we'll learn about the first black woman, Cantor, who was born here in Milwaukee.
2: Milwaukee at this time was a time of a lot of exciting black thought and modern African-American advancements.
0: All that's coming up on Lake Effect, but first, here are today's headlines. This is Lake Effect from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Audrey Nowakowski, thanks for joining us. Wisconsin has new legislative maps. For the second time in the state's history, Republicans and Democrats have come together to pass these maps, which will be in place for the November election. These are the first district maps in more than a decade that don't overwhelmingly favor Republicans. And according to John Johnson from Marquette Law School's Lubar Center, they will almost certainly lead to a more evenly divided legislature after the November election. Johnson joins Lake Effect's Joy Powers to talk about the new maps and what they'll mean for the Milwaukee area.
3: This is a big conversation for us. Uh, We have the maps. The legislature and the governor were able to come to a consensus on the maps that will be in place for the November election. It was interesting to see it play out. What was that process like?
4: It was a surprise to me, you know, back when the court threw out these maps and they invited the legislature and the governor to try again to come up with maps that they could agree on. I, At the time, I thought, well, there's a slim chance of that happening. But, you know, here we are. And, and, it, and it makes sense, as we've talked about, these maps are just a little bit better for Republicans than the other Democratic proposals before the court and in thinking about it more, I think maybe one of the big reasons why Republicans ultimately decided to support Evers' map is that his, his map really does take the possibility of Democrats flipping the state Senate in November of this year off the table. Only half the seats are up uh, in November, but one of the other plans before the Supreme Court would have actually created enough competitive seats in that class of Senate districts, which will be elected in November of 2024, that Democrats would have had a chance at winning a majority of the state Senate. And that could have created a Democratic trifecta after the November elections, majority control of both chambers of the legislature and the governor's mansion, which I think is the worst case outcome for Republicans. And so by moving to this compromise, they take that off the table. I think it was really unlikely that Democrats would have been that successful, even under that other plan I was talking about, but it was in the realm of possibility in a way that it isn't now.
3: So, in some ways, this map is mitigating some of that risk for Republicans. Yes. I was surprised that Democrats in the legislature voted against passing Evers maps. What exactly was that about?
4: I'm not sure. I was a little surpl- surprised by that, too. You know, if they had seen these maps. Two years ago, during the initial redistricting cycle, I, th- I think they would have been thrilled. Maybe they were just trying to preserve Governor Evers' veto power, uh, because the Republican majority is so large right now, even a few defections from Democrats would create a supermajority that could override a veto. Maybe, so maybe it was some kind of tactical thinking in that way, I'm not sure.
3: It seems like some of this, both passing the maps with the likely outcome that Republicans will maintain power in the Senate, uh, voting against Evers' maps, the the, the different ways that people have played politics with this, it does feel a bit like political theater. One of the statements that stood out to me especially was from uh, Robin Voss, who said, you know, even with these maps, we're still going to maintain power, which... I mean, statistically, it seems right, right? Like, even with these maps, it it is likely that Republicans could remain in power.
4: The most likely outcome under these maps is that whichever party wins a majority of the votes for state legislative races will actually win a majority of the seats. And that's true for Democrats and Republicans. And that hasn't been the case for quite a while in Wisconsin. But I think it's appropriate that both parties should feel that they can go out and win. And that is certainly true of Republicans. I mean, they have a lot of incumbents, people who are pretty popular with their constituents. And if they can go out and convince a majority of people to vote for them, as they have in the past, yeah, they'll almost certainly win a majority of the legislature. But the same is true for Democrats.
3: Which is, a, I think, a welcome change for a lot of people. Now, is it possible that these maps won't be used in the November election. Are there any challenges that would prevent it, or them, from being used?
4: These maps are now the law of the land. You know, They've been passed by the legislature, signed by the governor, they're on the books, they are the law. There are not currently any legal challenges to them that I'm aware of. Can't predict the future, but yeah.
3: In the grand scheme of all the maps that were submitted, What do you think of the maps that were chosen? How do they measure up?
4: They're similar to the other three Democratic-aligned plans. There's a way that they differ from the maps that the People's Map Commission drew uh, a couple years ago. That commission used competitiveness as a specific criteria. They were trying to draw a lot of competitive seats, and, and they succeeded in doing so. This map, is not especially competitive in terms of the number of seats that either party could win. There are more competitive seats than the old map. There's a few more, but there's not a dramatic number. It's not a dramatic increase. Now, those seats which are competitive are much more consequential because they'll determine control of the legislature, not just be the icing on the cake on a sort of baked-in Republican majority. But I think it's accurate to say this map raises the floor for Democrats and lowers the ceiling for Republicans, but it's not a map that maximizes the number of seats that either party could win.
3: Looking at some of these more consequential districts, we have a couple that are right here in the Milwaukee area. And I think anybody who is listening to this conversation, the the first question they're going to have about these maps is, what does this mean for me? What does this mean for people in the Milwaukee area?
4: Yeah. Shall we talk about the assembly first? Yeah, let's do it. Uh, so most of the assembly seats in the city of Milwaukee don't change much or at all. Uh, and that was a deliberate choice to, to try to keep them consistent with what the Voting Rights Act requires for minority representation in state legislatures. But there is a pretty big change on the western edge of the city and those western suburbs in Milwaukee County reaching over into Brookfield. So before the last round of redistricting, Democrats had actually managed to flip two districts over there, Robin Vining and Sarah Rodriguez, flipped a couple assembly seats that reached from Wauwatosa into Brookfield, I believe some of the western parts of the city of Milwaukee. Then Republicans redrew Robin Vining's seat to be a very safe Democratic and the seat that Sarah Rodriguez represented to be much more Republican. She then declined to run for re-election and became the lieutenant governor. But this map restores two Democratic-leaning seats on the western edge of Milwaukee, so there's a clear opportunity for Democrats to pick up a seat there. Uh, There are two pretty competitive districts in the Milwaukee metro, the 21st district, which covers a lot of Oak Creek. It's currently represented by Republican Jesse Rodriguez, but it moves to being uh, significantly more Democratic-leaning than it used to be. And then there's also a district that covers Greenfield and Greendale that tilts, I would say, a little bit Republican right now, but it's pretty competitive, and I expect both parties to contest it seriously. So those are the competitive seats in the Milwaukee Metro in the Assembly. In the state Senate, there are three competitive seats, one which leans Democratic, the fifth Senate district, which stretches through kind of West Dallas, um, Wauwatosa, over into Waukesha County, even towards the edge of Waukesha itself. That's a likely Democratic pickup. I think they'll be quite hopeful that they can win it. Of course, it, it won't be voted on until 2026 because it's an odd number district. There is an even number district, the 8th Senate District, which listeners might remember had a special election that wound up being pretty competitive, actually, although the Republican did win. Um, it'll be on the ballot again this November, and it stretches in its new configuration from Whitefish Bay up to Port Washington, through Mequon, and over to Menominee Falls. It leans a little bit Republican by some measures, but is, is going to be a real competitive seat, I suspect. Then in uh, the 2026 cycle, we'll see the 21st Senate District. The 21st District currently is suburban Racine, that area. It's changed quite significantly. Only 26% of its population is the same from the old version of that district to the new one. Now it stretches from Racine up through southern Milwaukee County and then even, even up into southwestern city of Milwaukee itself. Again, a little bit of a Republican lean, likely, but uh, the kind of area that Democrats have seen some improvement in recent cycles, and I expect them to contest fiercely in 2026. Depending on how things go across the map, that 21st district could actually decide majority control of the chamber in 2026.
3: Now, when we're saying you know, it leans Republican, it leans Democrat, I know that a lot of that is based on 2022 election results. What what qualifies something as leaning a certain way versus being safely Democratic, safely Republican?
4: It's a judgment call, but for, for my purposes, I try to take whatever blend of election results I'm using, and I look at single-digit leans versus double-digit leans. So mm-hmm. if the democratic or republican chair was between 45% and 55% i think well you know that's more competitive and if it's if it's a double digit you know a 10 point or more victory i think ah that's pretty safe you occasionally see swings of 10 points but it's pretty uncommon if you go back and look through the last decade or so of state legislative races
3: sure so we're talking about areas that could be decided on a handful of voters in some cases
4: as as with the state as a whole <laughs>
3: So uh, as you've mentioned, some of what we're talking about is going to be decided in 2026, but of course the entire assembly is up for re-election this year. What is the likely outcome? How should we expect to see the assembly change as a result of these maps?
4: There are a lot more pretty safe Democratic seats than there were previously. The biggest changes in the greater Madison area really south-central Wisconsin, stretching all the way down to Beloit. Under the old map, there were 11 safe Democratic seats in that area, 11 double-digit Democratic seats, now 16. And actually, none of those are particularly competitive. You took what were basically 11 safe Democratic seats and turned it into 16. Pretty safe Democratic seats. Uh, there are other changes of you know one or two seats around the state. So the Racine-Kenosha area had three Democratic seats, now four Milwaukee had 13, now 14, plus those two kind of competitive ones we talked about. Sheboygan moves from being split into two Republican districts into a single district covering the city of Sheboygan that has a Democratic lean. Uh, Green Bay was one Democratic seat previously. It still has a strong Democratic seat, but two real competitive ones. Fox Valley adds another likely Democratic pickup. Eau Claire adds a seat that Democrats will be trying to win. Northwestern Wisconsin adds a Democratic district that stretches along the lake from Duluth all the way to Ashland, and there's some changes in the Lacrosse area that could benefit Democrats as well. I think control of the Assembly will likely come down to a set of districts that includes the 61st in Greendale and Greenfield, the 88th and 89th in the Green Bay area, the 85th district, which covers Wausau, Uh, And in its new configuration, is much more competitive for Democrats. And then possibly the 30th district, which is those suburbs that are in Wisconsin, but are really oriented towards the twin cities in uh, Minnesota, where we've seen some movement towards Democrats in recent cycles.
3: So it seems likely that regardless of the individual elections, the assembly is likely to be at least more evenly divided.
4: Oh, certainly. Yeah. Uh, It it seems pretty much a given that Democrats are going to win at least somewhere in the mid 40s of seats, mid to lower 40s, you know, but uh, certainly more than they have now.
3: All right. Well, John, thank you so much for joining us here on Lake Effect, sharing your work. Uh, This has been quite the journey.
4: My pleasure.
0: John Johnson is a research fellow at Marquette Law School's Lubar Center, and he spoke with Lake Effect's Joy Powers. At wuwm.com, you can find our ongoing coverage of redistricting in Wisconsin and check out our previous conversations with Johnson. If you have a question about Wisconsin elections, let us know by filling out our election survey at wuwm.com. What you tell us will help inform the stories you hear on Lake Effect and WUWM as we start our coverage on local elections. Did you know the first black female cantor was born right here in Milwaukee? We'll tell you more about her in about 15 minutes. But first, we'll speak with comic Margaret Cho ahead of her stand-up tour stop in Milwaukee tonight. Keep listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Margaret Cho has been a stand-up comedian for the past 40 years. She's also an actor, musician, and entrepreneur. Cho's career has earned her both Grammy and Emmy nominations, and she was named one of Rolling Stone magazine's 50 best stand-up comics of all time. Cho has also built her personal and professional platform around being an advocate for causes such as anti-racism, anti-bullying, LGBTQIA rights, fighting sexism, and more. For Cho, comedy and laughter is the ultimate tool to endure the challenges that we face today. Cho's latest tour is called Live and Livid, and she's performing in Milwaukee tonight at the Pabst Theater. Ahead of that, she joins me now to talk about it and her career. Margaret Cho, welcome to Lake Effect. It's a pleasure to speak with you.
1: Thank you very much.
0: So you started practicing comedy at 14 years old because you, quote, wanted to be an adult so badly. So what was your idea of adulthood then? And why was stand-up the most grown-up thing you thought you could do?
1: I think it was about wearing a necktie of, or like a rhinestone brooch in um and a blazer. That to me was like the height of adulthood. That and like gloves. It's so weird how I thought gloves would make a whole difference <laughs> so I think I was like I I just had a really like I like it was more by, like fashion fashion was adulthood um I really wanted to be like Paula Poundstone I really wanted to be like Joan Rivers and um I wanted to just advance to be a 55 year old woman which oddly is what I am now so I didn't actually have to work to get there but um it's really funny how I looked back and I thought, oh, I, if, I am, if I'm just an adult, if I'm grown up, all my problems will be over.
0: Right, you mentioned Joan Rivers, who you've referred to as your comedy mother, and she's of course sadly passed away. What other comedians do you admire or always keep in mind, even if Joan is still that person for you that inspire you or even that you just admire for playing the long game?
1: She really is still, you know, she really, um, was such a role model in so many ways, not just in comedy, but just in aging, you know, and how to handle life and everything, art, comedy, commerce, all of it. You know, she was just such a mastery over it all. And so I think she's definitely somebody I I really admire. And now, you know, I look to Michelle Yeoh, who's absolutely incredible, who I idolized when I, I met her in the nineties and I, I just thought she was like the coolest, the coolest lady, like just amazing, um, physically amazing, but also just her work in cinema. At that point, you know, it, all all in the Hong Kong cinema, all of the things that she was doing, these action films, she was always amazing. So today, maybe not necessarily stand up comedy, but she's just such a role model. But I, I'm um I'm thinking about comedians like Richard Pryor. Certainly, Phyllis Diller, certainly Cody Fields, um, all of these people were just so influential.
0: You mentioned Michelle Yeoh, and especially as an example of aging, and still she has to remind people that women have value no matter what age. You know, especially with her success with Everything Everywhere All at Once, and I know you've had a lot of experience in TV and film industry over the years since the '90s. So. Do you still find it such a fight compared to when you were first getting into it in the 90s?
1: Absolutely. It's a fight to have agency. It's a fight to have visibility. It's a fight to even live. And for myself, like understanding, like also from a queer perspective, it's a fight to just survive, you know, um, it's really important to have our voices out there and to be heard and to be seen, and it's it's political. It's more political than ever.
0: Your latest tour on that note is called Live and Livid. So, what's the message at the heart of this material that you're currently touring with?
1: It, we have to be able to laugh to survive. We have to be able to harness our anger and find a way to find community to survive, to be able to endure it, to protect drag queens, to protect. Uh, gender non-conforming, non-binary kids. This is like such an important thing after um, the murder of Next Benedict, which was so tragic and should not have happened. I think more than ever, we as the elders in the LGBTQIA community need to step up. I think there are certain times where we did understand this can never happen again. We, we did that with Harvey Milk. We did that with Matthew Shepard. And again, now we have to do that with Next Benedict. So these Things are really important to our survival, I think, also to our state of mind, you know, just that we need to find a way to find humor and I think laughter is the answer laughter humor for me is always the answer because it is that glimmer of hope that brings you into the next moment and that's what we need.
0: Well, and I agree that comedy is sometimes the best tools at helping us process really dark things. Like, for example, during the height of COVID, I found myself drawn to watching various specials, whether it's Hannah Gadsby or discovering Maria Bamford's Lady Dynamite for the first time. Like when it was the darkest, I was like, let me go to comedians because they're dark too, but at least they're, they say things in a better manner or have worked the long way of processing to deliver it to us on stage. Is that how you feel about others or about your material?
1: Absolutely. And Hannah is such a, a wonderful example, this, as is Maria. I think both of them are true pioneers in this idea and the uh experience of using comedy as therapy in a way or using it as a document of survival. So I I really I really admire them, their friends, and they're just so brilliant. And so I'm I'm definitely with you on that. We need comedy to survive and also to look at the light hearted nature of survival and the need for it.
0: When it comes to writing a special, I am always blown away by the power of memorization that you and other comedians have. How do you get to that point where you are up on stage for an hour at least and you are seemingly like tying all these callbacks and jokes together and making a cohesive show?
1: I think it's just something like, it is like music, you know, when you sort of memorize a piece of music and you sort of have it embedded into your hard drive, like it is really getting it into your system. And it maybe maybe easier because it's written from the heart. You know, some of these things are things that we're very well versed in, very well experienced in. And so uh, all of those things are easy to relate. I never have issues with sort of memorizing, like with, stand-up comedy or the where I have trouble I think maybe is if I'm learning something else like if I'm doing a show tv show or acting and something movie or something then it's a little bit more challenging because it's other people's words you know that's um somewhere where I think it's a little bit more of a, a thought about oh that's that's actually memorization but in comedy it's a more organic thing where you're telling something from your heart
0: Speaking of uh, television and film roles, you've had various ones over the years. How do those challenge you creatively in a different way? Or what do you look forward to the most about putting yourself in that setting for work?
1: I love it because it's stepping into another reality and um, something that is super exciting. Whether it's a world that I, you're already really well-versed and a big fan of. like For me, it, it was really exciting to go be on Second City or 30 Rock because these are Like sets that I know, these are places that I know, these are characters that I already know. And then being able to kind of go in there and play with them. It's really, really exciting as a fan and as an actor. So it's just challenging you in a different way. And I just, I really, I I really get so excited.
0: What brings you joy on tour? You're currently um, speaking with me in a car on the way to the airport to come to Milwaukee, which I so appreciate. But touring is a grind. So what are the elements or the most rewarding aspects that's kept you in the industry for the past 40 years?
1: Well, the way that I do it now is very comfortable. And, you know, usually it's just a couple of days out of the week and then I'm going and I've been doing this for such a long time. So I've done it in different ways. I've done it in a Sprinter van going across the country I've done it in uh, a rental car I've done it these different ways sometimes I've gotten to go with other people and do it doing bigger shows and then like then that's sort of a big sort of thing like touring on a tour bus with Cindy Labber that was a completely great experience a really exciting experience but totally different so this is actually way more luxurious way easier and I like the pace of it so I'm very comfortable doing it
0: well, and you've certainly earned how you want to dictate your tours by now.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's really nice.
0: And you have spent your, nearly your whole life on stage. How has performing in front of an audience shaped how you deal with both challenges and successes? Like, for example, how do you feel if the rare occasion, I'm sure nowadays, if you bomb? Yeah. How do you handle things differently? I imagine what you do on stage harnesses other aspects of your life.
1: Well, it's really, you You have to take it into, in stride in that this is the one profession in entertainment where you have to continually prove yourself and prove yourself and prove yourself and prove yourself. And you have to co- constantly improve on what you're doing as well. So there's a need to continually take risks. Your reputation can only buy you maybe about 15 seconds on stage, which is an eternity if there's no response. So you really have to be on your game and work on it. And then I always look at it as a, it's a continual work in progress. So if it doesn't go as well as you'd like, and that happens actually pretty often because I do a lot of shows. You know, I do a lot of things uh, to prepare, do a lot of things um, to kind of work things out. So sometimes it's just very much like people are not understanding what I'm talking about because I don't even know what I'm talking about yet. So it's hard to get there, but it's like something that I have a lot of patience with. Um, so I don't really have a way of taking it personally because I know that this is going to work out in the end. This is all going to make sense later.
0: So when do you feel you're at a point where you're like, okay, I can take this set, and this is going to be my next tour?
1: Um, It's it's always still working on You're always still working on it. You're always still kind of work. And also the way that news is now, when you want to incorporate things, that it's so immediate. Things happen, and everybody knows about what's going on because of social media and the way that we take in news and information. Everybody's aware of everything all the time. So everything is always shifting and changing. And you have to be ready for that.
0: I was watching a clip of you on Bill Mayer's random show. And a quote that stuck out to me was, I don't know who I am without working. And I think that sometimes is an American sensibility, right? We immediately ask someone, what do you do? But as you talk about the constant work in progress and the challenge, I think that's a nice way to live your life and to always be engaged creatively with yourself, if not with the whole community. Yeah,
1: because I do love it. And I also really have a social life that is built around this, you know, and I'm friends with so many comedians and we don't really know how to live without each other. You know, we need each other to kind of survive everything because we just look at the world in a certain way and we need to have that acknowledgement that we're not alone Then that. So, I think that it's a life's purpose.
0: Well, Margaret, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me before you come to Milwaukee, and I hope you have an amazing show. Thank you. Margaret Cho is a stand up comedian, and her latest tour is called Live and Livid. She'll be at the Pabst Theater performing it tonight, and you can find more information about it at wuwm.com. Milwaukee lays claim to the first black woman cantor, who grew up here in the early 1900s. Madame Goldie Steiner wasn't a cantor in an Ashkenazi or European Jewish synagogue. Those roles were not open to women until the 1970s and 80s. But she may have led prayers in black Jewish communities and was part of the Golden Age of Jewish liturgical music, singing it throughout Wisconsin, the Midwest, and the country as a part of the Yiddish theater scene on Broadway and on the radio. WUWM's Mayan Silver speaks with Milwaukee-born educator, artist, and advocate, Shahana McKinney-Balden to learn more about her life.
5: So Madame Goldie Steiner was born in 1889 as Gladys May Sellers and raised in Milwaukee. Can you tell us about her life?
2: Yes. She sang from a very young age, and she was a gifted vocalist. As a young person, She um, went to school in Milwaukee Public Schools where she undoubtedly became fluent in German because all kids were getting at least some instruction in German in Milwaukee Public Schools at that time. As a young adult, she was an usher at the Pabst Theater and then she uh, was active in her church, which was Saint Mark A.M.E. Church, the same Saint Mark A.M.E. Church, which is still active in Milwaukee today. They're on Atkinson and about Sixteenth and Atkinson. And she was very active in the um, musical life of the church. The church was a very important center of African-American life at this time. And, you know, before the Great Migration, there were very few African-Americans in Milwaukee. In her early life, um, there were probably a thousand black people in Milwaukee. Uh, But anyway, she, she grew up, she got married to Albert Smack, who was... A singer, and who also um, uh, ended up uh, working at the uh, Milwaukee Journal. He was a, a metal man there, and they both were involved in the musical life of the church. And Gladys sang in the church, and also in the community. And she sang in the community in Milwaukee, and in the surrounding region, in Madison, in Chicago, in. Minnesota uh, and she's sang at some very important African-American community events, a send-off for African-American soldiers headed off to World War I, the opening of a black-owned business in Madison that was an all-day affair with a full baseball game and looking at stereoscope images of uh, black progress and solos by Gladys. She was part of the Wisconsin delegation that represented the state at the Jubilee 50-year celebration after emancipation. It was a little bit more than 50 years after. I think it took a while to get this event together. Um, But this was in Chicago and she was a part of it. The black press followed her career. The Wisconsin Weekly Blade an important black paper that was published in Madison and then in Milwaukee later and the Chicago Defender which had a correspondent who was based in Milwaukee. They followed her career so we know quite a bit about her singing career in Milwaukee and then around 1922 she gives it all up and she leaves and she goes to New York. And in New York, she becomes Madam Goldie Steiner and she starts to sing Jewish liturgical music. This was the golden age of chazanas, which is the term for Jewish liturgical music led by a prayer leader called a chazan. There were women who were doing this. They were called chazantas, which actually meant the wife of a chazan, but it's a term that these woman singers took on as they were a part also of this golden age of chazanus, where Jewish liturgical music was sung in concert halls, on the radio, and on records. It was wildly popular in the Jewish community and also beyond. There was a handful of African-American Chazanim who were a part of this golden age of chazanus, and Madam Goldie Steiner was the only African-American woman to our knowledge who was a part of this artistic movement.
5: That's amazing. Um, Do you know anything about her transition into Jewish liturgical music? Like, What inspired her to, to start singing that? Was it just geography being in New York and being around that, or do you have any idea?
2: Well, we have some, we have some ideas. First of all, she already sang in many languages before she became a part of this golden age of Chazonas movement. And Milwaukee at this time was a time of a lot of exciting, black thought and modern African-American advancements in philosophy and religion. As a matter of fact, Milwaukee plays an important role in many of the stories of indigenous African-American religion, African-American homegrown religious movements like the Nation of Islam. Milwaukee is the place where Elijah Muhammad came and hid out for several years when he had to move away from where he was at in in the early years of his career. And Milwaukee was also a place where African American Judaism has a lot of historic connections. I imagine that Madame Goldie Steiner had a lot of connections to Jewishness and Jewish traditions from a few different angles. That included, yes, moving to New York, actually to the Lower East Side, and becoming a part of the Yiddish theater scene there.
5: And as she became a part of the Yiddish theater scene, she was facing the same kind of racism and social restrictions that black male hunters experienced, but she had an extra layer being a woman in that environment. Can you, can you talk about what it means to be a woman who chose to sing chazonas, which are synagogue chants, basically?
2: Madam Goldie Steiner is a, one of a cohort of woman chazentas who are a part of this golden age of chazonas and Dr. Jeremiah Lockwood is doing really exciting research to retell the story of the Hazentas. These women were not singing in synagogues, partly due to traditional religious restrictions against men listening to women singing for modesty reasons. But actually, again, this is part of the golden age of Chazanis where men were also singing this music in concert halls, on the radio, on records. But for Madam Goldie Steiner, if she was engaged with what we call today Hebrew Israelite or indigenous African American Judaisms, communities. Those communities actually had a lot of woman leadership. They had women in positions of authority who were leading prayer and other elements of community life for those communities. And so, for example, if she went to New York and became a part of the Commandment Keepers, or another of the more well-known Black Jewish communities there, it's conceivable that she was in leadership positions and maybe even leading prayers in those communities. Uh, But certainly in Ashkenazi Jewish synagogues, the woman leadership of prayers for the full congregation doesn't come until much later, with a very few exceptions. So, Madame Goldie is part of of many lineages and legacies. And yes, the Koli Shah prohibition against the the voice of a woman is a part of the story, but it's only a part.
5: So, she spent a few decades in New York and then she performed elsewhere around the country. When did she come back to Milwaukee and, and what was the end of her life like?
2: I want to give a shout out to my friend and teacher Henry Sapoznik, who did the groundbreaking research, which is the only reason any of us are talking about Madame Goldie Steiner and her trailblazing career uh, today, along with the other um, African American chazanim from the Golden Age of Chazanus. I learned about Madame Goldie Steiner from Henry's research, and I was listening to a talk that he had given on Zoom one day, and he was talking about how he, uh, the last known performance of hers was this amazing showcase that was a fundraiser for the Brooklyn Urban League, where she performed on a bill with all these amazing, famous people, including Duke Ellington. And then he says, we lose track of her after 1941. And I'm listening, thinking, I bet she went home to Milwaukee. That's what I would do. And I just kind of started poking around and doing my own internet research and going on ancestry.com, frankly, as well as paying close attention to kind of what other armchair. Folks were doing different comments on different Twitter threads where folks had posted about Henry's research. And um, I found her. I found her family. I found her story about the end of her life. I found her unmarked grave in Milwaukee, which is near Alverno College. And yes, she came home to Milwaukee sometime in the 40s where she lived with her husband her second husband Richard Armstead and um, his daughter and then Richard died in 1953. And she lived in Milwaukee until 1960 where she, when she died in Wauwatosa and they're both buried at Mount Olivet Cemetery, um, which is like 35th and Morgan. So I'm just thrilled. And I've been thinking about this as rematriating her story to Milwaukee and to the history and histories of Milwaukee. I mean, there is this part of the story, which is I'm also a black woman from Milwaukee who sings Jewish liturgical music. And um, I've really uh, appreciated the opportunities that getting connected to Madame Goldie Steiner have afforded me and, and other people in our communities to connect and collaborate. So really looking forward to lots more of that. Well,
5: it's really a noble effort to share her story and to publicize and to let people know her, her great impact and talents. Thank you so much, Shahana McKinney-Balden, for speaking with us about Madam Goldie Steiner.
2: Thank you, Mayan. Um...
0: Shahana McKinney-Balden is an educator, artist, advocate, and thought leader on racial and ethnic diversity in the Jewish community. She spoke with WUWM's Myon Silver. We'll take one more break, and then we'll learn about the annual boxing night hosted by the Milwaukee Athletic Club and how it benefits young people in the community. That's next on Lake Effect on Milwaukee's NPR. This is Like effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. The Milwaukee Athletic Club has hosted an annual boxing night for over a century. Money raised at the event goes to regional youth boxing clubs, and in the last 25 years, it's raised more than $100,000. Tomorrow's annual boxing night is sold out, but it will be another opportunity to raise money and for spectators to enjoy boxing matches featuring men, women, and young people. To learn more about the annual event, WUWM's Eddie Morales is joined by Brad Schendel, the Member Services Director at the Milwaukee Athletic Club and longtime organizer of Boxing Night.
6: What is the history of Boxing Night? So, uh, MAC Boxing Night uh, has been going on for literally over 100 years. Some of our athletic directors uh, were professional boxers, became the athletic directors. And it's just something that we've had. I mean, you could uh, look at our records dating back over 100 years. So we kind of call this about uh, our 105th annual uh, boxing night. How has that changed over the years? And what is the impact that it has in the community currently? It used to be prior to, I would say, the 1980s, just an event for the MAC where we'd bring in the all-gold glove boxers, not not the, not the pros so much. And uh, we would have a a ring set up in our gym, and people sit around it and just enjoy boxing. Because way back in the day, you know, when you're talking 50s, 60s, boxing was the spectator sport, uh, not only in Milwaukee, but, you know, the the whole United States. So now what we turned it into is more of an event. So uh, people come down here. uh, It's jacket and tie. uh, People dress. It's a big steak dinner or fish because it's Lent. It's going to be on uh, a day of Lent. But it's a big event to get around, a lot of client entertainment, a lot of corporations investing in it. And uh, so we just made it a much bigger, more fun event where people come down and eat and drink and, and enjoy boxing. And again, it, it's gold glove boxing uh, where they're, you know, they have full equipment, headgear, huge gloves and all that. So no one really gets hurt. It's more the entertainment of it. Over the years, to put the event on, we donate to the boxing clubs, whether it be in the Milwaukee area or outside of Milwaukee. And uh, since I took it over, which was at least 25 years ago, uh, we've donated over $100,000 to boxing clubs throughout the community. Which, again, it goes to the uh, it, it goes to community because it helps you know some kids that are that need structure in their lives that get in the structured setting where they can have something to look forward to and have some mentors. And, and I think that's what it really does for the club. You see a, a lot of people down here. That are really into boxing and and they learn from it and and they become better people after they've been through the program. Uh, we've had uh, some promoters that have adopted kids from these, you know, from getting them off the streets and all that too. So it's just a rewarding program for the community and also, of course, you know, our members enjoy it too. How would you explain this as far as um, competition, like amateur, professional? Can you just explain that level of competition? Yeah, so we have we have not had a professional boxing matches here at the mac in a very long time and we might have it in the future but it's all amateur boxing and it could be all ranges of uh, men and women participated in this so typically every time we have a a boxing night we have women box also and uh it's actually some young kids there'll be some kids that are really new to the program that are really grade school kind of kids uh their matches are only one minute long and uh You know, again, something where that they have huge gloves on and gear and, you know, they're very well protected and they can't really hurt each other. But then you get into high school kids and also college kids. So for the most part, it's uh, upper level high school kids and college kids that are coming in here boxing. And uh, again, you know, we have a doctor here. We have uh, EMTs on call and uh, they all have to go through a physical. The entire program is safety is one of the most important things, of course, anytime you do something where you're having, you know, physical battle and you might get a bloody nose or things like that too, but not much worse than that. And uh, so it's mostly, you know, young adults, I would say is that, that although uh, we are going to have a match where one of our members is actually boxing in it and he's in his forties, he's going to fight a 50 or box a 50 year old uh, in a match is coming up. We've had matches where uh, years ago, where we had a, uh, they came up to me, it was a Milwaukee lawyer who uh, enjoys boxing as a form of workout. And uh, he asked if he could box a- another person his age, and ended up to be a priest. And so it was a Milwaukee lawyer and Milwaukee priest each in their 70s boxing. They moved like 70 year olds too. But it was just pretty entertaining. So how can people, uh, if people are interested in this, like, what do they need to be able to see this? Is this something that they have to be members for? Can you just explain that? So it 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 is actually a public event, uh, but it's extremely popular. So we announce it to our member members first, of course. We're a, you know a member first club, and it sells out in ten minutes. So the opportunity for somebody that's not a member to be involved with it is difficult. But if you can become a member of the MAC, you know besides our boxing night, we have a lot of other programming, whether it be business or social programming and ways to network and connect with a lot of other people, not only our, our athletics pro lead and social programming but you really kind of need to be a member to get your foot in the door to have the opportunity to sign up for boxing night and then even then, not all our members that want to sign up for it can get in because we obviously have limited space we fit about, currently the way our ballroom is set up, about 220-230 and as I said, uh, it sold out in 10 minutes when we announced it to our members Well, thanks so much Brad righty, thank you
0: Brad Schendel is the Member Services Director at the Milwaukee Athletic Club. He spoke to WUWM's Eddie Morales. And that's Lake Effect for today. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Joy Powers, Sam Woods, and Excret Nunez join me in producing Lake Effect each week with help from Robert Larry. Becky Mortensen is our executive producer. We also heard from Susan Bence, Lena Tran, Chuck Kornbach, Mayan Silver, Emily Files, Eric Von Fellow, Nadia Kelly, and Eddie Morales from the WUWM news team this week. Jason Revy is our studio engineer. Michelle Matarnowski is our digital manager. Valeria Navarro-Viegas is our digital editor. Trapper Shep wrote our theme music. If you've missed any of the Lake Effect this week, you can find all of our conversations at wuwm.com. If you'd like to take the show on the go, you can download the Lake Effect podcast wherever you get your podcasts join us again on Monday at noon when we'll learn how students at UW-Milwaukee are being impacted by the cuts to diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts. Plus, we'll tell you about a local beer being brewed in the name of rare disease awareness. Thanks so much for joining us today, right here on listener-supported 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR.